0: all right we got up to I don't want to duplicate anything he did we got up to chapter 3 story of the snare yes we did right. so let's just take a look at that briefly important story okay. 116 Moshe is at this point settled into the land of Midian he works for his father-in-law First, Pasuk says, <laughs> So he's working for his father in whose name now is Yitro. In the previous story, his name was Ruel. Different name over here, Yitro. And, uh, and he has a wife, Sipora. And they have at least one child over here. And Moshe names his son Gershom. That's what we know so far. And then we're told at the end of chapter two that Israel is groaning from their bondage, and their cries are reaching heaven, and God hears, and God remembers the covenant with Abraham Yusuf and Jacob. God sees Israel, and the last words of chapter two, and God knows, by Elohim. Here they translate, God took notice. And Vayeda means more than just taking notice. Radat means to know. But it often has the meaning of more than just knowing, but empathizing, experiencing. It's a much, much more, taking notice is very, you know, I noticed something. But to know it, Vayeda, is very different. So Vayeda, God is seeing, God is knowing. That's the end of chapter 2. God is remembering the covenant so presumably God will do something about it and that's the subject of the next chapter once God knows and remembers and sees and all that God has promised to take action because the covenant was a commitment on God's part to redeem these people out of, out of their slavery and that's what it says at the end of chapter 2 that the Christ ascended to God you know, from the slavery the bondage so now God is going to have to act and take Israel out of Egypt and that's chapter 3 so it begins Focusing on Moshe, who was the subject already of the second chapter. So Moshe is a shepherd. He works for his father, whose well, name is Yitro. We spoke about this once already, about Yitro, the change of the name. In chapter 2, he's Uel, God's friend. Re a friend. Instead of in chapter 3, presumably it's the same person. He has a different name, which is Yitro. And Yitro means... Yeter means extra, or superfluous, unnecessary. So their name is Yitro, ready, before we even read the story, he has become superfluous. The reason he has become superfluous is not because he's a bad person or anything like that. He becomes superfluous in this chapter, story, because Moshe has a different mission. Moshe has to leave. That's number one. And number two... Because specifically, Moshe has to leave to save Moshe's brothers and sisters. Yitro, whatever we think of him, is the priest of Midyam. He's not one of Moshe's brothers and sisters. He's not involved in the covenant. So Moshe is going to have to leave this person, even though it's very clear in the story in the second chapter also that they have a very deep bond. There's a deep relationship between them. Nonetheless, he will have to leave. So we're now beginning the first klasukh. So it says by Inhagat Tatson Midbar, Moshe drove the flock. Probably to the could mean into the mountains or at the edge of the mountains. And he came to the mountain of God in Chorev. The mountain of God in Chorev has another name in the Chumash which is Harsinai. So Moshe ends up at Harsinai in the story we want to psychologize it, I suppose we could ask the question: Why does it? Why does he take this flock to to Chorev, to Sinai, to the Mountain of God? Is it accidental that he does so? Sounds that way. or is it maybe subconsciously he's searching for something? I don't know. In any event, willy nilly, he finds himself at the Mountain of God in Chorev, which at that point is not the Mountain of God, presumably. Becomes the mountain of God later when God is revealed at Sinai. But at this point, it's just a mountain. So the Chumash is speaking from the standpoint of what happens later, it's Elohim. That's where Moshe finds himself. He's a shepherd in Midian. So an angel of God appeared to Moshe in a fire, Mitochasneh. From a sneh. Sneh is a little bush. Some kind of a desert shrub. Vayar, Moshe saw. He saw, and behold, this little bush was burning. However, it was not consumed. It was not consumed. It was not. Something burns usually, it burns out. This was a little shrub. That was burning, but was not burning out. Let me turn aside," says Moshe, and see. This great thing, this great vision. Why is this little snare not 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 completely burnt Why does it continue to burn? God saw that Moshe had turned aside to see. God called out from amidst the shrub from the steps Moshe Moshe and Moshe says so we stop here for a moment first of all it's actually very interesting this whole scenario over here it sounds like it's a device a scheme to get Moshe to to move forward, to take an interest in something. And when God gets Moshe's attention, God is speaking to Moshe. So the first thing that's interesting is that it, Moshe is represented here in these sukim as somebody who has a kind of intellectual curiosity. It's an odd thing to him. This, you know, something burns, it gets consumed. This is what is not consumed, so Moshe is curious. He's a curious side to him. He wants to understand that something which is uh, true of Moshe throughout his entire life. He's someone with a curiosity, a deep curiosity about things. That's number one. Number two, from the fact that God has to bring Moshe close through this scheme of device, suggests to us, and Moshe has no history in terms of prophecy or anything resembling that. Otherwise, you wouldn't need this whole scheme. Just talk to Moshe. But Moshe, no. Moshe knows nothing about any of this so God has to attract Moshe by means of the snare that's point number two point number three is what does this snare represent in the first place what is the idea of the snare which is a lowly desert desert plant or whatever what is the point of talking out of the snare and of course we know that the snare is the word snare reminds us of a different word closely related to Sneh which is Sinai Har Sinai so of course the, this mountain which is called the mountain of God in Chore later the same place will be called Har Sinai but what is this imagery of God speaking out of this out of this out of this little Sneh so there are many Midrashim about it oh beautiful Midrashim one has to do some of the Midrashim see God as present in this lowly state in this lowly little plant in the middle of a desert some wanted, some Idrashim read that as God's empathy with Israel same way Israel finds itself in a lowly state so too is God in a lowly state Israel is in exile one might say God is in exile there is some Idrashim to that effect uh, but in terms of the more most plausible explanation of the symbol of the step I would say that what the snare represents is first of all that God actually is, is, is present. Because the truth is that um, for all of these many years that Israel has been in Egypt beginning from the time that Yaakov goes down to Egypt chapter 46 until this, until this verse over here we haven't, worried, we haven't heard God say a single word suddenly we reflect on this God is speaking Moshe Moshe and we realize that God before this didn't speak for so many years from the moment that Yaakov goes down to Mitzrayim or on the way down to Mitzrayim God stops speaking the last words that God speaks are Bresheed chapter 46 and the last words that God speaks in that very speech itself the speech begins chapter 46 Yaakov goes down to Egypt goes to 'er Beersheba in fact Mishava is always the jumping off point. Goes to Mishava, and in verse number two on page ninety nine, byomer olhei m'Yisrael Yaakov Yaakov, It's page forty six, page ninety nine, chapter forty six. So that speech, that's the last time God spoke before this one, begins with God calling to Yaakov Yaakov Yaakov. Yaakov says Hineni. Now over here in the story, over here, here it's Moshe Moshe so the two are identical actually one is the and that's the last time that God speaks so it means that to be in the land of Egypt in the Chumash means to be in a place where God doesn't speak to you God does speak over here but the point of the speech over here is to tell Moshe to take the people out so God will speak to you in Mitzrayim if the messages get out one might say the same thing as in last week's Parsha God spoke to Yaakov in the Parsha God said to Yaakov chapter 31 get out teha, go return to the land of your, your home to your homeland and I will be with you that's the first time God speaks but in the whole Parsha when Yaakov is working for Laban, he has two wives four wives eleven children twelve children whatever all of that stuff Yaakov doesn't, God never intervenes in that story. That's in the house of love, on his exile. So over here in Mitzrayim, it's the same thing. God always talks at the moment that God instructs Moshe, or will instruct Moshe, to go back to Egypt and to take out uh, the people, the Jews. This particular story of God's appearing to Moshe, which is a very important story for many reasons, One is, it's the template for other stories in the Bible where God is addressing somebody, someone's kind of inauguration, setting someone aside for a mission. That's the story over here. Really a mission to serve the people. That's Moshe's mission over here. God spoke to Abraham also, Go So Here's the mission to serve the people. This we have elsewhere as well. We have a Yishayahu, You have with Yirmiyahu. We have it elsewhere. Those, the prophets, the prophet, the calling of the prophet, that we have over here. And there's another story besides Yishayahu and Yirmiyahu, where the prophet is called to perform a task, to deliver a message, and that story actually has great parallels to the story of the snap. One might say it's built upon the story of the snap. And that's a story that appears also in chapter 3 of the book of Shmuel. Chapter 3 of Sefer Shmuel, there we have a story that's built on the story over here. It's actually very instructive because through that story, we can see how the writer of Shmuel understood the story of the Snev. And this is found in our translations here anyway, on page 577. Five hundred seventy-seven. right. The story over there is that Shmuel has been sent by his mother to live with the priest at, at Shiloh. The priest is named Ailey. And Ailey has two sons who run the show, but they are very corrupt. So Shmuel is designated by his mother. She nurses him, she cares for him, and she sends them off to be with Ailey. And Shmuel is serving God before Eli. That's what the book of Shmuel says in chapter 2. Now we have chapter 3. It begins this way. So the little boy Samuel served God before Eli. So Eli is like his uh, rebbe. Eli is his teacher. One might say his father as well because he's given over to Eli. Adopted father. And uh but Shmuel serves God before Eli The other sons of Eli are corrupt, but Shmuel is not. In those days, says the book of Shmuel, the word of God was very dear. It means it was very rare. In Chazon nifratz, prophecy was not widespread. Chazon literally means a vision. God, the vision of God was rare in those days it was certainly not widespread so that's how the story begins Shmuel is living in Shigo which is the temple center of worship in that time now we come to the second verse in, at that time in those days at that time one, one certain day Eli was sleeping in his place somewhere in the temple he has a a room where he sleeps Eli's bedroom and his eyes were dim his eyes were becoming dim he could not see that particular phrase is an interesting one because it seems completely and totally irrelevant. The story has nothing to do with the scene. It's not, it's not. Y- no, well, Yitzhak is similar, yes. It's Yitzhak can't see either, right, it's true. The language is the same. The question is, why is that significant for the story over here? Th- th- this is not a, a, a writer who puts things in for no reason. Let's put it that way. There's a reason for it but it's not the reason it's not presumably the story the, the story has nothing to do with Eli seeing anything I would say so I would say so the next verse is very strange verse the fire of God was not yet extinguished the lamp of God had not gone out. There's a little fire in the temple. It's a temple. It's not extinguished. It's burning in a... But it's burning... Terem It's not yet extinguished. means it's burning in... It could be. It's very small fire. It could be extinguished. Weak. weak yes. But the fire is a weak, weak flame. And then it says, And Shmuel was sleeping behechal Hashem in the temple of God. Ashasham Aronavokim, with the Ark of God was present. Uh, let's say the, the verse from top to bottom seems on the surface not to cohere very well. What is the have to, but of course, think about it. First of all, what does the second half of the sentence mean? Shmuel was sleeping, which lends itself to two interpretations. One is, which the mepharshim don't particularly care for, he's actually sleeping next to the Ark. He's sleeping in the temple where there's an Ark, means that's where he's actually sleeping. Ailes sleeps some other place in the temple. He's sleeping next to the Ark. The commentaries are bothered by what he's sleeping next to the Ark. So they interpret it a little differently. He's sleeping in the temple of God in which there is an Ark. Not that he sleeps next to the Ark. He's sleeping in some room. But in the temple of God in which there is an Ark. But in point of fact it doesn't make that much difference the two interpretations are not so far apart because the pasuk says he's sleeping in the temple he didn't have to add and wish there was an ark so in any event we have to whether he's sleeping next to the ark or, or ten feet away from the ark we still have to understand why the, why the book of Shmuel tells us that in this hechal there is an ark of God we know there's an ark of God in the temple so what, the, what, what does that mean? So here's what I, I think the Pesukim are actually saying. The psukim is saying, Shiloh, we don't know this yet. If you've never read it before, you don't know it. You know one thing about Shiloh? It's a place of corruption. The Shmuel, Book of Shmuel said it black on white. Now it's a place of corruption. At the end of the previous chapter, a prophet goes to Ali and says to Ali that you were chosen, your family was chosen back in the land of Egypt, but I can't take it anymore, says God. You're totally, you don't see the corruption that's going on your own children. I'm going to destroy the house of we destroy Shigo. That's already in chapter 2. Haley has been told that. Now we're, ch- so Shigo basically is on the way out. Shigo is a place which is very corrupt. And we're told in the previous chapter, God is considering, threatening to destroy it. Now you go to, the, to our chapter. In those days, it starts by saying, in those days, the visions of God were scarce. God is not seen. And we understand why God is not seen. Because God not seen means that God is not communicating with anybody. And the reason is, with whom would God possibly communicate? The point of the verse is that it's a place of corruption. So God, why would God, God's not talking. I would say that in addition to that, People don't talk for a lot of reasons. Sometimes people are shy. Some people only talk when they have something to say. It's just pretty rare, actually, but that's, that's true. Um, sometimes people are silent because they're angry. That happens. In the book of Shmuel, I would say, if you had to ask me which one it is, I would say, God has nobody to talk to, but there's something else. There's a very angry God. I mean, God is angry in many places in the Bible, but over here in particular, God doesn't speak, I would claim, perhaps because God is angry and if that be the case then Samuel chapter 3 is quite parallel to Samuel chapter 1 because in Samuel chapter 1 we have exactly that someone who doesn't speak and that person of course is one of the heroes of the book Hannah so Hannah is praying her lips are moving but there's no, there's no sound Hayley thinks she's drunk he says to her remove your drunken state from my holy temple which Chana says, No sir. I'm not drunk. I'm just I'm, I'm bitter, right? Morat Nefesh says it's a bitter person. I'm very I'm angry and bitter and I see myself as suffering. I pour out I pour out my soul before God. So she can't but she's not talking. She's incapable of actually talking. She speaks, but no words come out. So one might say that in chapter three, She's on the same, wave, same wavelength as the God of chapter 3 whose words are very dear. God is not speaking. Communicate to who? There's to talk to. And that's the first. So in chazom there are no visions. That's verse number 1. Verse number 2 tells us that Eli himself, Eli himself, his eyes are dim, he cannot see. Yes, it is reminiscent of Isaac. E'nav echegu kehot means as he gets older, he old. So the point is, there's a parallel now between Shiloh on one hand and Eli on the other. The uh, Shilo, in, oh, I would say, there's a parallel in general. There's no visions. Now in terms of Eli, his eyes are dim. He he, he progressively cannot see. And verse number three, Vener Elohim terem yichber. In the very Shiloh itself, the lights are dim. They're very weak lights. They're almost not. They're almost extinguished, which of course is a harbinger of what's to happen in the future because in chapter 4, Sheol is destroyed. And then the book of Shemuel adds anyway, Eli sleeps in his place. He's sleeping over there. But Samuel is sleeping in the temple in which the Ark is present and that's a very important point because what is the function of the Ark and in the, in the, in the main function of the Ark in the Chumash? It has one main function, which is what? It's the place from which God speaks. I will talk to you, but God meets you and more to the point, God speaks to you from above the ark. So the point is, I, one way to read it is, he's sleeping, whether he's sleeping next to the ark, or in the temple which there is an ark, but the point is the same point. He's sleeping there because the ark essentially if he's sleeping next to the ark because it has no function. It's a, it's a nice museum piece because God doesn't speak. Right? So no one expects Sheol is a place where God doesn't talk. And little Samuel, the priest sleeps elsewhere, in his place, and Shua sleeps in his place, which is in one form or another next to the ark because the ark has no function. God hasn't spoken. And all of a sudden, in the next pasuk. El Shmuel, by God called to Samuel and he said he named it there's no question here in my mind anyway that the story over here as it unfolds is exactly based on the story of the snare which is our story exactly the same story there's a little God God is revealed to Moshe in this tiny shrub there's a little tiny fire. Which means, since the point of it is that God begins to speak, but it's speaking in a small diminished form, because all these years, God hasn't spoken. God never talks in Egypt. 200 years, whatever number of years it is, God since the time before Yaakov gets to Egypt, till now, (coughs) all those generations, it's four generations, the fourth generation for Yaakov, third in Egypt, fourth generation. And God has not spoken. Not because God has disappeared but because God has nobody to speak to. And suddenly God calls Moshe, Moshe, Yomer and over here, God says, God says, uh, Shmuel, And Hineni. Hineni means, here I am. I am, I would, Hineni is a commitment, even before you know, what you're being told to do. Now in the case over here, in the case of Shmuel and the calling of Shmuel Shmuel doesn't realize that God is talking to him Shmuel thinks that Eli is talking to him Eli in a different place in a different room so he hears a voice Shmuel so he assumes it's is going so he runs off to Eli that's what happens over here Eli, He ran to Eli he didn't say walk to Eli by the way says he runs to Eli because he's Tashem with Ne He serves God through, before Eli. So Eli is his Rebbe. The Rebbe brings you to God. That's why you venerate the Rebbe. So he runs off to Eli because he he's running to God, actually. But he runs to Eli and he says, Hidden knee. is I am here, Kikaratali. I'm here because you call me. That is to say, I'm sorry for disturbing you. I know I shouldn't otherwise you can't just walk into the Rebbe that would be inappropriate but you you called me and therefore I come I'm present that you called me tell me what you want me to do I didn't call you go back and sleep so he does exactly that he goes back and goes to sleep we'll read a little more over here we'll get back to the snap God continued to call Shmuel Vayakob Shmuel Shmuel got up Vayelech of He walks to Eli this time Walks, but He's not sure Vayomer Hineni I am here Because you called me Yes? Vayomer Lohcherati Bini I didn't call you He says, right? Shuv Shchav I didn't call you my son He calls him bini, Which is very important He is his son Eli is his adopted father. It's a sense of endearment. Maybe he appreciates the fact that Shmuel was rushing to do his bidding. So, nope. Wasn't me. Bayosef Hashem will Then God called Samuel for a third time. by He got up and went to Eli. By Hinaniki I am present. You called me. Bayovin Eli kiashem Eli understood that God is speaking to the boy. Eli said, Go back to sleep, lie down. And if he calls you, say this Speak, O Lord, your servant is listening. And Shmuel went and slept in his place. In his place, because this time he's not going to go to Eli anymore. He's his, now he's in his own place. And Eli has instructed him what to do. And God came and stood there. Right? It reminds us of the verse in the Chumish. And Moses meets God. He stood there with him. Over here. Here it's the doubles. Moshe Moshe call Shmuel Shmuel God is in search of Shmuel So Shmuel says what Eli told him to say Speak Your servant is listening So we have here God speaking For the first will since when I mean God speaks, spoke to Eli In the previous chapter To tell him Through this Ishnavi Anonymous prophet That his house will be destroyed But outside of that The text has informed us that the word of God was very scarce. There's no visions. Now God speaks to Shmuel. I'm doing something in Israel. Whenever he hears it, his ears will ring, it means he won't unbelievably can't, can't imagine such a thing. I'm doing the unimaginable. Yamahu Akima Leili I will fulfil all that I spoke to Eli to utterly destroy his house. If he got it I will tell him. I will I will judge his house. I will condemn his house forever. Because he knew that his sons are cursing them in him. His sons are cursing me. he did not rebuke them. So Eli is responsible for that rebuking his sons as they are acting inappropriately in the holy space. Therefore, I swear that the house of Eli will not be atoned for with sacrifice forever. That's the message to Shmuel that Eli in the house of Eli will be destroyed forever. And it's going to happen right away because he was already told before it's going to happen someday. It means now. I faith that I'm judging him right now. That's the message this little boy is getting, Samuel. Samuel went to sleep until the morning. He opened up the doors of the house. It's interesting that the text tells us that. Maybe that was his job every day to open up the temple gates. But over here, It specifically mentions it. He opens the temple gates. Maybe that means that in a certain sense he's taken over. Eli's going to be destroyed. The house of Eli will be destroyed. Who's going to lead the people? If there's no priesthood. The priesthood as a political force will be destroyed. So who's going to lead the people? A different a different kind of leader. It's going to be Shmuel actually at first. So symbolically, he's opening up the gates. Samuel was afraid to, to to tell the vision to Eli he didn't want to tell him this terrible news so Eli called for Shmuel he said Shmuel my son I am present I am present What did God say to you? Do not hide it from me. He takes an oath; means terrible things will happen to you. If you will hide from me the thing that anything that God told you, I want you to tell me what God said. Samuel told him all the things he did not. He, he withheld nothing from him. Va'yomar, and Eli said, "Hashem hu, Hashem hu. God is. It is God's word. Atov bi'nevi Yaseh, He will do what is good in God's eyes." That's the story. You see the first of all, let me say one thing about the Book of Shemuel. is one of the greatest, but. The great books also understand the biblical narratives are all connected. The great ones know how to attach themselves to the great stories. This is a play off the snap, but the, of course, the Book of Shmuel never just repeats what's earlier. Anybody could do that. The Book of Shmuel always has a, a different angle on it, and puts into the equation over here something very powerful, which is not present in the story of Moshe. The story of Moshe does have a very strong personal aspect to it. The personal aspect in the story of Moshe and a very surprising one is that Moshe is going to be told to go back to Egypt. Going back to Egypt will present to Moshe two, two main problems. One problem is not the ones he actually says. I don't think those are the main problems. They are problems. But I suspect there are two other things that actually are driving Moshe. Because when God says go back to Mitzrayim he has a million excuses, you know someone has a lot of excuses usually means that's not the real reason there are two things in the story that are driving Moshe and are, are his concern one of which he sort of hints at one of them is that he doesn't actually trust the people that he's going back to save and he has no reason to the people he's going back to save are the very people who endanger him in the first place Moshe had to run away from Egypt because Pharaoh heard about all this stuff that Moshe had done how does Pharaoh hear about it? How, did, how does Pharaoh know what Moshe did? It's clear in the text that, one way or another, either by direct informing or indirectly, not keeping their mouth shut, they are responsible for Moshe having to run away. And second of all, he gets his picture of the Jewish people is formed when he walks outside and he sees first a Jew being beaten up on one day, and the next day two Jews are fighting. And when he tries to intervene, he's told that's not his business and not only that who, who, who asked you to be a leader who, to be a prince and a leader who asked you gonna kill us the way he killed the Egyptian there's even maybe a threat over there and in fact it seems like they carry it through on the threat these are the people that Moshe is told to go back and save they don't want him first of all and number two they reject any kind of justice they seem to be more concerned with the Egyptian's welfare than their own so that's one point but the second point about Moshe leaving To go back to Egypt is that if he leaves to go back to Egypt he has to break with the only person in the world he actually cares about. His, his, I would say, his father figure, maybe his Rebbe and his friend whose name is Yitro or Re'uvel in the second chapter. They actually like each other. As the Chumar said, Vayom Moshe Roshavetet Ish." Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave him his daughter as a wife. The wife is very secondary. The kids are secondary. But the one he actually cares about is this Yitro. So leaving Midyan, where he has a he has a family, he has a job. Let's start with that and a family, and he has this priest that he actually respects and who seems to have a very similar set of values about justice, about helping the weak, and all that. To go back to a people who he has little reason to respect, and on top of it, we knows have endangered him. In. That's the story of Moshe. But the story of Shmuel, which plays off that, is much more powerful in a certain way because it's not rejecting a friend or even a father figure. Eli is a father figure. But the point of the whole point of the story is that Eli is actually not just his father, he's also his teacher. He's his Rebbe. The point of the story is that when he hears a voice, he hears a voice. He assumes it's the voice of it's the voice of uh, of uh, Eli. And three times he runs to Eli. The, the the writer of this story is picking up on something that's very powerful and very true, and that is that for, for Shmuel, the voice of God and the voice of Eli are the same voice they're two different voices because he's serving God what does God's voice sound like God's voice sounds like the voice of Eli because he serves God before Eli so it's his Rebbe his Rebbe talks God is talking and you notice in the story that when he hears this voice he runs first of all he actually runs there then he walks he gets up and goes each time he says exactly the same thing I am here for you call me he says, "I don't want to impose on you, but yes, okay. Here I am. And three consecutive times he runs there, and one has the impression in the story, which obviously is true. If it happens another twenty times, it will come twenty more times. Will come forever, because when as soon as the Aili speaks, he thinks talking. God is talking. So you go. It's not a question of if it'll go a hundred times, it'll go forever. So how does Samuel become a prophet in the story?" He becomes a prophet because, because Eli teaches him what it means to be a prophet and in two different senses. Samuel has no idea that God is speaking to him. How would he know? He's a little boy and no one's a prophet. It's very rare. But Eli says to him, listen, here's what you got to do. Next time you hear that voice, say the following words. Speak. Speak, O Lord. Your servant is listening and that is actually very important that so Eli is the one actually who taught him to accept the prophecy not only that he taught something else and Eved does whatever the, the master tells him to do that's what it means to be a servant so God tells you what to do you say it's not just say those words it's understand what it means to be to hear God's word you have to accept it the has no choice. He must accept what God says. Speak so, and then he hears this news. It's a shocker that God and Eli are actually enemies. He had no idea. I'm going to destroy the house of Eli, and specifically, Eli is also guilty because his sons are cursing God. The Lo Kihabam. He does not rebuke them. The Lo Kiha is an interesting word. Interesting word, kiha, kaf Why is it an interesting word? Because that's how the chapter begins with the same word. How the chapter begin? In those days, right? Eli was sleeping in his place. And his eyes were kei'hot. Kehot and kihah, the same word. His eyes were dim. Right? That's how it begins. And later God says to Shmuel that Elie is to be punished the house of Elie why? why is Elie guilty? because he knew what his sons were doing the lo ki when I say he didn't dim them he didn't silence them right? so he's guilty because he didn't he let it go he didn't intervene but the sense is it's interesting because why does Elie not rebuke them actually? That's a good question we don't know for sure why he doesn't rebuke them but it sounds like that he doesn't actually fully comprehend you could say for several reasons why but it could be that he doesn't actually fully understand what they're doing he knows they're doing something wrong in fact we're not studying the book of Shemuel now but when he talks to them he says I'm hearing not nice things he says I'm hearing not nice things he doesn't say I know you're doing x he says I'm hearing not nice things These, I got it by word of someone else Third party, whatever Sounds like His failure to rebuke them Is not because he is Dishonoring God Or was dishonoring God But rather because He doesn't fully grasp What they're doing Maybe also potentially they are his sons So he feels uh, Loyalty to his sons Or mercy on his sons Or pity or whatever it is so, he's, I would say it's more about his inability to perceive or his weakness, his ineptitude, rather than his wickedness. He's not, he's not a wicked man. In a certain sense, he's a very holy man. He said Isaac before. Isaac's a good example of that, actually. Yeah? Actually, I said, yeah, I was wondering his daughter was at Tom's burning incense to God and things like that, and his eyes towards him. Well, the text never says that. They were burning incense. That's the Mepharshim. It says that the text never connects directly his eyes being dim with the verses that you cited. The verse you cited is the verse before. The Medrash connects the two verses. But that the simple shot of Isaac not seeing has to do with something else. I spoke about it in one of the Parsha classes. It's not it's not that Isaac is a very holy man but he has So in that sense, he's good. On the other hand, he uh, is going to favor Esau. He makes mistakes of judgment. That's a bad way to formulate it. Because the two things are not, I would say it's not despite the fact that he's saintly, he makes mistakes of judgment. I would say it's because he's saintly, he makes mistakes of judgment. It's the other side of the coin. In other words, Isaac is somebody who never leaves the Holy Land He's somebody who's extraordinarily close to God. Isaac speaks and God responds immediately. Such a person never has to walk out of his own little world. When faced with something that he doesn't experience, when faced with something outside himself, he doesn't know how to deal with people. It's like Moshe in a certain way. It's different, but Moshe is not a people person. He's very much happy to stand on the mountain with God. He's happy to be with God. He doesn't need to speak to people. It's two sides of the same coin. I remember many years ago, I gave a shia about three years ago. And uh, I was talking about this motion of being God connected. And that, so what is God connected? It often follows that, but that people connected. There was a guy visiting the shear, nice man, won't mention his name. liked him. It's so a Rebbe someplace. I says, no, no. I, 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 I don't agree with you, he says. I said, okay. What do you think? He was on a different madrega. He was on a different level It's yeshivish talk So I said you actually do agree with me We're not disagreeing He's on a different level Okay He's on a different level He's on the level of the people So he can't communicate Okay I accept that But it's We're not disagreeing The fact that you say it in yeshivish language And I say it in a different You know straight English Doesn't mean we disagree it was you prefer to verbalize it with a certain kind of language. I'm not going to get into why, but we're saying the identical thing. And that's the point about Isaac, and maybe the point about Eli is a guy, basically, who is very, very concerned. It sounds crazy in a way, but he, he, he stands by the temple gates. He's, he's going to guard the temple from any kind of intrusion. And there's a woman there in the temple. She's crying or whatever. She's muttering in the temple. And no words are coming out. He thinks that she's drunk. He runs over to her. And says, my dear, please remove your drunkenness from, from, from the holy precincts. So she says to him, I'm not drunk. I am just bitter. I pour my soul out before God. At which point Ailey says to her, may God should grant your request, my dear. May God grant your request. See, Ailey is very interesting. On one hand, he's a very sweet person, actually. Secondly, he's actually really concerned <coughs> with, the, with, the, with, with preserving the holiness of the temple. But meanwhile, his two sons are running amok. They're doing all kinds of stuff in the temple, including raping the women who come to the temple. And, and apart from that, that's what it says. And they're also ripping off God. They're stealing God's sacrifices, and they're also robbing the people. That he doesn't say much. I heard not nice things. But the one person who pours his soul out to God... He criticizes because not because he's not now He's a he's a. You could have presented him as a bad priest. He's not a bad priest. On the contrary, when Chana wants to give her son to somebody to entrust her son to a holy person, she actually chooses Eli. She serves God before Eli. That's the beauty of this. He's 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 actually a holy he's holy man. But holy man doesn't mean perceptive man. He's not perceptive. He can't see, and the failure to to uh, rebuke his kids to go Kihabam the text purposely connects those two things in any event here you have a story and the point is then Shavu, after he gets this message Ewe calls him in what did God say to you? I swear, he says I impose upon you an oath you must tell me and hold back nothing at all Ewe senses that something to do with himself he knows about the previous prophecy anyway so Shmuel says everything. Ailey says, God has spoken, God will do what is good in God's eye. It's powerful. But the, the powerful point is this. It's not just that, it's not just that Shmuel is devoted to Ailey. The point of the story is, it's about who actually, not this, the point of the story is the, the, the inauguration of the prophet. That's what the book of Shmuel picks up on based on the death. But who, who actually teaches Shmuel to be a prophet? One person teaches them to be a prophet. Eli. Ewe. Eli's Rebbe. Eli says two things. First of all, this is the way one receives prophecy. Right? God's not speaking to Eli at this point. God speaks only to Samuel. First thing is, this is what you got to say to receive the prophecy. And the second point is, the role of the prophet is to speak the truth. You can't withhold the prophecy. The Gemara talks about if you withhold it, it's a serious crime. The Gemara says, you can't withhold the if you're a prophet and God gives you a prophet, prophecy, you have to reveal it wherever the chips may fall. It makes no difference. He's actually teaching something very important. And when he hears the prophecy, he doesn't criticize. He says, God, is, God will do what is good in God's eye. Hashemu, God has spoken. There's no, there's no complaint. But he's teaching Shmuel something very important. He calls him B'ni, he's his son. He's actually his father figure and teacher all rolled into one. And this is the person that Shmuel has to inform. His first prophecy is that God is going to destroy you and your house. That's what you don't have in the case of Moshe. Because in the case of Moshe, in the simple reading of the text, there is no sense on any level that Paro is Moshe's father. I don't care that Bat-Paro is his mother. It's irrelevant. There is no sense in the Chumash, maybe in the movies it's that way, in the Chumash, there's not a sense that Paro and Moshe have any connection whatsoever. It's a power was to kill him. But outside of that, yes. A question. So he hears the hears the voice. When well, he was brought up in the power.
1: Whose power? What palace?
0: Shrule or Moshe? Moshe. Okay. He no no sense that he has any idea that there's a Hashtag at all. Why does he do his bidding? What he do what? So we have we he knows something about God. First of all, let's say the following. First of all, he knows something about God because God addresses, God is teaching him. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knows about Abraham, Isaac. He knows something. I agree, he doesn't know much. He knows something. I would say something else. Probably, he knows a lot about God from a different source. His adopted father is the priest of Midian. So we learned from the priest of Midian all about God. This first Rebbe is probably Yitro. It's his teacher. It's not just a father. It's father and Rebbe rolled into one, and he has to leave him. But it doesn't have the same pathos that you have with Shmuel. The story of Shmuel, a very powerful story, look... He knows, he's been told by Eli, and furthermore, but the point is that Eli throughout the story is actually helping him. In other words, the ability to issue the prophecy properly is completely a function of Eli, the man who's on the receiving end of this prophecy. That's the point of the story. There's a great tragedy in the story. I mean most of the tragic figure in a different way, but Shmo is truly a tragic figure if you think about it. His first two prophecies. His first pre Shmuel has two main jobs in his life. The first is to is to uh, remove, is to prophesy against league his father figure and priest, and she was destroyed. And the second main prophecy he has is to tell Saul King Saul that he's finished God has torn the kingship away from you and given it to someone who's better he's also the one who inaugurates two kings though it's obvious when you study the book of Shemuel that he's completely opposed to kingship to begin with he calls kingship idolatry but what can he do God has told him to do it he fights he kicks he screams but he doesn't but the one, Saul is basically his son Saul is like his adopted son and he always his adopted father and the first, the two main prophecies of his life are first to remove, to get rid of his adopted father, and the second one is to get rid of his adopted son. <laughs> that's, that's his job. That's what he's called to do. So there is an element of tragedy, and it's not an accident that the writer of Shmuel, book of Shmuel, chooses Moshe as the template for Shmuel. That's, we'll get to that maybe later. It comes up in the context of Moshe. Shmuel is based on Moshe but the story of the, anyway my point being a long point to make a small point but my point is that when you read the story of the snare through the third chapter of Shmuel it becomes clear what this fire is all about the fire is basically revelation in those days there was no vision there was no fire is almost out and suddenly God speaks to Shmuel suddenly I would say that to add a point about Shmuel the book of Shmuel which is true and it's also related to our story of Moshe when you read the book of Shmuel even the previous prophecy to Eli it begins in this way God says God sends a man of God to speak to Eli in chapter 2 and God says to Eli it begins with the words I took you out of I appeared to you in the land of Egypt that's what it is I appeared to you in the land of Egypt says to Eli Eli's family I chose you back in the land of Egypt. That's the point. But now you have rejected me. Now you have degraded me. And the point is that in a way that the house of Eli, Shiloh, it has reverted back to Egypt. So that, that's why in the book Hannah promises to dedicate her child to God and she's standing inside the corrupt temple and this character is based on Moshe. One might say the book of Shmuel in a certain sense is a spiritual exodus from Egypt you have to start all over again because you it took us out of Egypt to build the temple the temple is totally corrupt so Hannah says okay so let's build a new temple I can't do it myself but my son will do it my son will establish in this world God's true kingship and the book of Shmuel actually ends with discovering the place of the temple it's not an accident that's how the book ends it's actually very interesting so in any anyway, event let's get back to the stand now let's get back to the stand uh, ok wrong, but it's good very good yeah great book Shmuel I love it after, Bre- after the Cholmish is the best after Breshit is another world another level but Shmuel is very good ok now let us see so we have here Hinani. here's the point about Hinani. back to page 116 Hineni means, this is actually a very important point in the story. For two chapters, just about, Moshe will c- complain. I can't do it, I can't do it, get somebody else, I can't speak. These excuses. But the point is, that when God appeared to Moshe and said, Moshe, Moshe, by Yomer Hineni, Hineni, means, I am present, it means I accept. He doesn't know what God's going to tell him. He's already accepted it. So the reader knows, we don't. Know. And even though he stands to get somebody else and all that, at the end of the day, he's not gonna have much of a choice, because he already said I'll do it. And that's the point of Hinaini. Hinaini means here I am, As Abu said at the Akedah. Hinaini. Before he knows anything. <laughs> <laughs> now the second point. I'll take your long. Do not come too close. Shal mialecha miyar raguecha. Take off your shoes. Kiyama Koma Sha'to made love at You are standing in a holy place. Why is it a holy place? Because God is there. Because God is present. But it's a holy place for another reason too. It's the place to which you're going to return later. Because this is the place of our Sinai. In other words, Moshe inadvertently, or maybe unconsciously, he knows, who knows. But he appears now at Sinai, and God says, don't get too close. That's a very important point. First, first directed Moshe was told is don't means there has to be a distance between where you are and where I am. Now, later on, the Chomish Moshe goes to the top of the mountain. So there's much less distance, but maybe part of it over here. But later on, in Sinai with Israel. What does the Chumash say? When we receive the Torah at Sinai, so we're not allowed to get too close, right? We're not allowed to get too close, right? Don't get too close. Moshe here in the story at this point cannot even get too close. Because he's, un- he's unworthy, he's not ready, he's not prepared. This is all a big surprise over here. God is we talking to Moshe in the desert. Fine. Now we have God's first words to Moshe in verse number 6. <laughs> Elohim. How do we translate verse number six? God said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. How do we understand? The, the verse is actually ambiguous. There are two ways to read it I am the God of your father, and also I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does it mean? I am the God of your father, that is to say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's always plural with God. Elohim is a plural. I am the God of your father. That is to say, your father, right. So your, your father three people, but it's, it still could use the singular. You're right. You could use the singular in any event. Your father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That I think is actually the pshat, the second way. Was why are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... Moses is a man who's Moses, Moses has no father. He has a biological father, but in chapter two, he has three mothers essentially. He's got Pharaoh's daughter. He's got his own natural mother. He's got a sister who operates as a mother. He's got a lot of women in his life. He has no men. And now, he, in the desert, God says to Moses, "You have a father. Your father is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob." In what sense are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Now, apparently, he's heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It sounds like he's not three names out of a hat he knows these names the the patriarchs are your father they're your father I presume because what distinguishes the patriarchs from everybody else even the matriarchs is that the patriarchs all three of them speak to God in Breshit and God speaks to them that's why the first blessing of the Shemoneh we call Avot because the Avot all talk to God and God spoke to them that's not true of the Imahot. The Imahot, maybe only one spoke to God, which is Rebecca. Possibly, the others don't no speak. Well, I mean, they pray. I would take that back. Maybe Leah and Rachel pray, it's possible. We didn't directly God speaking to them you know, directly. In any event, it means that you are the child of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in terms—at least in terms of revelation. Yes. right but we have to remember after Jacob God has not spoken I know but that's right. the point of the uh, right the link exists correct the link exists even though I haven't spoken in so many years it's not that I have died or something like that I'm very much alive the moment has come for me to speak and you Moshe are the recipient you, are the, you have the ability to enter into this dialogue with God now at this point, by them, Moshe Pana, Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God, to see God. Later on it talks about Moses seeing God face to face. But at this point, he's at the beginning of his career. So God has not told him anything yet. All God said was, I'm here, I speak, and you're standing in a holy place. But Moshe had not gotten the, okay, that's nice, what are you trying to say? And that's where you begin in verse number 7, where God gives the instructions. And Hashem, so God said, "Ra'ol ra'iti et oni yami hashem beMitzrayim, pi et zakhatam shamati ki odati et God said, "Ra'ol ra'iti" means to put a double. I have certainly seen. It's an emphatic. I have certainly seen the suffering of my people, the plight of my people in Egypt. Pi et shamati, I have heard their cries. Mipnei no'ak on account of those that oppress them, ki'adati et machovav, and I know their pain. So we have pointed out many times in the past that when God describes what God is seeing, knowing, and hearing, that those three verbs all appeared at the end of the previous chapter. Chapter two ends that way, right? It says, "By Yishma'elohim" in verse twenty-four, "By Yiskar" in verse twenty-four. Vayar in 25, and Vayeda in 25. Of those four verbs, to hear, to remember, to see and know, three of them appear in this verse. The first being Raho, Rahiti, I have seen the suffering. Then it's Shaklatam Shamati, I hear the cries. And then Yadati and Machovav, I know the pain. What is not mentioned in the verse is remembering. God says nothing to Moshe about Remembering. God only talks about hearing and seeing and and knowing, but not about remembering. So the question that's interesting is, why does God not mention remembering? God doesn't mention it. Before we get to that, I want to point out that the verb to see, it seems to be related, is related in this verse to the noun oni. Oni, only means the plight or the suffering shamati I've heard the next thing is I hear their cries on account of those that torment them it reminds me of what we read in last week's Torah reading when Leah has the first two children the first one she names Ruve. and she says "Rah Hashem on God has seen my plight it's exactly what we have over here seeing the plight the second child she names Shimon Ki Shama Hashem Ki God has heard that I am un- unbeloved or hated He gave me this child. There's a difference between God seeing and God hearing. Which is worse, because God seeing, God sees my plight, suggests that God is seeing but not hearing because he's not saying anything. God, The second child, God is hearing that I am hated, means I'm saying, I'm complaining. God is hearing my complaints. But the first child is not even complaints because sometimes we don't bother to complain someone says why didn't you say that to so and so and you say what's the point what am I going to say there's no point sometimes you're in a place where there's no point to say anything or you feel that way sometimes you're so down you can't even speak so therefore the first one God is then God has to see God can't hear because there are no words then sometimes you're in a place where at least you at the level where you can at least cry out and scream and complain. That's a better place. That's Shema, at Shimon. That's better than Bruvain. Here, here God mentions first the seeing of the Oni, then the hearing, and says, and I feel, I know their pain. So God mentions three of the four verbs, but the fourth verb, to remember, that doesn't appear in this chapter directly. It appears later on, and the reason I think is this actually an important reason to relate to the development of Moshe Moshe apparently knows about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob that's clear what he doesn't seem to know is the covenantal promise made to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob God doesn't say that to Moshe till chapter 6 Until chapter 6 Moshe doesn't know anything about a covenant and the question is why does God refrain from saying anything until chapter 6. Why couldn't God tell him right now? I made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I want to fulfill the promise. I think the answer is that he's not really capable of understanding it. You only understand something. We can't always understand the, We can hear the words. But to understand something is typically depends on where a person is at. So many things we can't understand unless you actually experience it you can't understand it many situ- situations certain things you can always tell somebody who was in that same situation someone was not in that situation they have no way to comprehend it so Moshe is, we'll get to this later is not ready to hear that yet not ready about the covenantal promise he is ready to hear something else though He's re- he, he understands people suffering that he understands M- macho above their pain Noxav, right? The, the oppression, the tyranny. He understands the only the plight that he gets. But covenantal is something different that we'll get to. He understands the plight and the suffering and the pain because in the previous chapter, on three separate occasions he intervened on behalf of people that were downtrodden, that were being beaten. So God appeals to Moshe where he's at. He says, Moshe, listen, people are suffering, I've got to do something about it. So I'm going to Next verse, I'm going to go down to save them, right? save him, the people from Egypt, who I will tell and to bring them up from that place, from Egypt. To a good and broad land. To a land of milk and honey. The land inhabited by these powerful nations. That's how God describes the holy land. Good, broad, milk and honey, place of the Canaanites. So that's what God says. That's my program. To alleviate the suffering. And now, right now, even as we speak, the cries are sent to me. And I see the lachats. Lachats is let's say the translation lachats over here. Pressure. Pressure is possible. In modern Hebrew, it's pressure. Oppression, pressure. Lachatz means typically, it means, can mean. Lachatz, how does the Haggadah explain Lachatz? Most difficult to rush in the Haggadah. What does it say in the Haggadah? Who remembers? I talk about it in Haggadah. Lachatz, dochak is like pressure, it's like compression. Not la- dochak means you're in a very tight place. That's Dochak. So the word lachatz means dochak. Lachatzenu, it says in Arami Yovayi, we got so lachatzenu. Says the Agada, what is the Lachatsay As it is written, "Kamreiti yetal Lachats Hashem Yisrael otam." If you think about the Drasha, it's one simple problem. It seems to make absolutely no sense at any level. What? Well, Lachatsay it as it is written in our verse. I have seen the Lachats that Yisrael lochatsim otam. Oh, it's very lovely. It only proves one thing: that Lachats means it means Lachats. How does it prove that lachats means dochak? The verse doesn't say dochak. It is a rachatz, means lachats? How does rachatz prove dochak? I have an answer to it. I'm not sure it's right. It's pretty clever. I think it's true, actually. But forget the answer. Never bothered you? It makes no sense on any level. The word dochak is not a Hebrew word. Let's start with that. Dochatz are How do you spell that word. Dawud, chet, kuf. Dawud, chet, kuf. Dokak. So how does it prove that <laughs> what, but it means this, I think. The Drasha is not just based on sometimes on the Pasik they cite. The Drasha is based on the on the context. The, what the Hadgad is picking up is the following. Why mention mitzrayim? Could have said a gamut It's talking about Mitzrayim But it says it's playing off the word Mitzrayim the word Mitzrayim has in the word yes a narrow space Mitzar is a narrow space and God said earlier two verses earlier I will bring them to what kind of land to a broad land Broadway. so the point is Mitzrayim is to be in a narrow space and I'm going to bring them to a broad space a narrow space means a place where you can't make choices that's dochak dochak means to be in a narrow space so they're picking up the, the darshan of the Haggadah it says from the context is contrasting mitzrayim with what came earlier a broad space mitzrayim is rachatz how is mitzrayim rachatz because you're in a narrow space means you have no choices in such a narrow space you see no way out sometimes why do you do so have, have no way out there's only one path there's no other path out that's what we think sometimes usually we're not right but, uh, but we think so so the point is God says to Moshe when the Haggadah understands it and not only that it's a psychological point I, I see that psychologically they're in such a place that they have no way out they're caught in a very narrow place they can't move out but I'm going to take them to a broad place Eretz Tovo Minameitza ka. we say in Hallel Anani Bamerchavka take me right, I call you from the narrow straits or ba marathon, give me a broad place, I mean, it's a place of choice I want to be in a place where I could choose, in any event that's what God said to Moshe over here we notice something very interesting over here which fits in what I said before what is the, what is the Holy Land? the land of Canaan is the Holy Land, right, we call it the Holy Land so we have two different definitions in Sefer Shemot right here in this context of the Holy Land over here the holy land is described in three ways the lands of the Canaanites that's the third way milk and honey is the second way and the first way is good and broad okay good and broad eriz tova and because why and now we're in a narrow place in Mitzrayim a place of bondage a place of suffering a place of no choice says God I'm going to free them up I'm going to give them a a, a big place place of many nations, a place of broadness a place of milk and honey now if you are in suffering in Egypt, that probably is what you're looking for, milk and honey but in chapter 6 when God speaks to Moshe after Moshe goes down to Egypt and fails, Moshe goes down to Egypt to get, speak to Pharaoh, to convince him to let the Jews out to serve God and as a result of his intercession Powell says that I'm going to take away all the straw that's what he accomplishes take away all the straw got to fulfill the same number of, the same number of bricks the Jewish taskmaster are beaten up that's what our beloved Moshe accomplishes the first time he goes down there so he goes back to God and complains why did you send me? You made it worse, not better and Moshe is angry he says, why "And you involve me in this? it's cruel, you know God says you'll see, you'll see and then God speaks to Moshe in chapter six. I appear to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We'll get to there. One of the great chapters. It says, and he made promises to them to give them the land of Canaan. And they have heard the suffering. So therefore, tell the people I will save them, I'll deliver them, I'll redeem them, I'll bring them into the land. What land will God bring them to in chapter six? Chapter six, verse number eight at page 123 Earlier actually God also mentioned about the land in verse number 4 page 122 I made a promise to give them Eretz Canaan Eretz Megurehem Ba, the land of their sojournings that's how God described it earlier and now in verse number 8 so what is the land over here? In verse number 8. The land... What does it mean, I swore. To raise, raise your right hand and tell the truth, right? To raise your hand in biblical jargon is an oath it's the land that I swore to give to Abraham Isaac and Jacob I am the Lord the whole section here begins with the word Ani Hashem starts with Ani Hashem and ends with Ani Hashem so it's interesting what is the difference between the Holy Land in chapter 3 and the Holy Land in chapter 6 Holy Land in chapter 3 is the land of the Canaanites the many nations of Canaan right? mentions all the nations Many peoples live there. Big people, straw people live there. Number two, it's milk and honey. And number three, it's good and broad. That is all missing from chapter 6. It mentions one nation, the land of Canaan. It doesn't mention anything about milk and honey. So it says the land of their sojournings, ger, from the word ger. And number three, it's the land that God swore to give. It's the land upon which there was an oath both means in God's name it's the land that I swore to give in God's name but I would go beyond that and say something else actually which I think is correct about chapter 6 it's not actually about the land it's not that the land per se is important the land is important for a different reason it's a very important point it's important because through the land you can connect to God it's the place where you can connect to God that's the significance of the Holy Land for one thing God is speaking there God is talking there second point is that it's a place where in theory you have dominion over the land no one is telling you what to do I say in theory but that's the idea of it the idea is that when you live outside the land let's say you live in the book of Esther the land of Achashverosh that's what the book wrestles with can you actually live a good life when Achashverosh is the king Which the answer is, it's very difficult. Maybe not impossible, but it's extremely difficult for the simple reason that if you ever deviate from what Achashverosh wants, you're in mortal danger. It's not so simple. Mordecai doesn't bow down, all the Jews are going to get killed. not so simple. You have to be able somehow to negotiate Achashverosh. You can't ever tell the truth to Achashverosh. You have to negotiate with Achashverosh and somehow get him off your back and then you manage to hopefully have your own holiday have your own values etc it's not easy to do it's very difficult to do it almost impossible if you live in Mitzrayim it's very hard to do what you really want to do in Mitzrayim because you always have power so the idea of the land of Canaan in the Chumash is it's the place where you're free from the Pharaohs and from Achashverosh and all that and you can actually do what you should be doing you can create your own society actually that's amazing so it's that's, that's different, that's chapter 6 that's the holy land, that's the place that I swore to give where there's sojournings there's no broad, there's no milk and no honey but it's something different than the the goal is to be in a place where you can actually serve God and the land is a connective and the land is a connective because in the Chumash in any event you, need, you serve God's through this, through this world you don't serve God by exempting yourself from the world you serve God through the world but the world in which you are there has to be a world which, which invites you to serve God if every step of the way you're worried if I do this they're going to kill me it's very hard to serve God under those circumstances so that's the that I think is now the question for our purposes will be is that clock right? it's 2 minutes to 11 or something like that? Yeah. It's not that way. It's not a five minutes late. I mean, it's two to 11. Okay, anyway. All right, anyway. Um, the question, of course, in the Chumash is, in terms of Moshe's development, I was going to say, why does God wait till chapter six to tell him? Why can't Moshe learn this in chapter three? And uh, just to briefly one, make one suggestion, and that's the following. I said before, we only learn when we can hear it. You know what I mean? It's like when we're ready, when we're ready to hear it usually, I can say my own experience I've taught many things, many times same, same thing and like I've talked about the covenantal formula of suffering, gave it out to the inui innumerable times That in order to possess the land you have to be a stranger and a slave and abused I remember, about two years ago I was sitting in the morning, I mentioned this in passing someone said, one second are you telling me that in order to enter into the covenant you have to suffer? I mean, I said, I've been saying this for 30 years. I mean, look, why now? Seriously, okay, curious. Why do you ask the question now? This would have been in the class for 20 years. I wonder why you ask the question now. I mean, don't really answer me. but in other words, the point is it depends where we are. You can hear about many things, but unless you're in a place you can actually hear it, you're not going to understand it. Moshe, in order that Moshe understand the idea, that the covenant involves the land of our sojournings that that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob says God they never possessed the land they had a promise but they never saw the fulfillment of that promise Jacob's whole life is that basically exile exile to the house of Lava and exile to Egypt suffering here suffering there but he sets up the covenant but Moshe what does Moshe inform this? Moshe goes down to Egypt to save the people and when he comes back He turns to God and says, You told me to save the people. I went down to Egypt and it's a hundred times worse. Now there's no score, now they're being beaten. Why did you send me? So God says to Moshe, Okay, now you're able to understand what I'm going to tell you about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. But this particular covenant, it's not what you think. That you're suffering, you go down, it's all better. It doesn't work that way in my covenant for whatever reason. My covenant is years of suffering, and those that suffer actually never see the covenant. Jacob never sees the covenant Jacob never goes he dies in Egypt he bury him in the land of Canaan he goes down there knowing what's going to be in the future he accepts it so Moshe now I want to tell you something you are the son of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and the reader knows on the spot by the way he's going nowhere he will never enter the land that's obvious he's the son of Abraham Isaac and Jacob you set up the covenant for somebody else that's what it is he's our teacher he sets it up for the others he himself will never experience it but and the point is there's a link between the generations that's the point of the Chumash the one who picked this up and anybody whoever existed one who understood it to the end I don't know who the person is whoever put together a little book called Haggadah Shopesach. Pesach that's what Haggadah is actually about it's the link of those generations the people we, we link we, we tie ourselves to the people that left Egypt people left Egypt die in the desert the entire Haggadah is about leaving Mitzrayim they go out to Egypt walked around in circles for 40 years and all dropped dead but these are the people we are connecting to we say our fate and their fate are connected so it's not that they suffer and we're someplace else it's that all the generations are participating in this covenantal process so Moshe can't understand it in chapter 3 he knows one thing in chapter 3 people who are being beaten up he got to help you that he understands that's what God says milk and honey you know broad land that he gets But the idea that this covenant is resting upon a certain degree of failure and the acceptance of a process that he couldn't possibly fathom until he himself undergoes it in chapter 5. He goes back. He turns to God angry. Why did you send me? I don't understand why you sent me. Makes no sense. You'll see. Now let me tell you something. I told you before you're the son of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But I didn't explain it fully to you then. Before it was about revelation. And now it's something else. Now it's about the process of the covenant. And the fourth word which is omitted in chapter 3 Koret Preeti appears of course in chapter 6. And when God speaks to Moses Kamani, Shamati, etc. in verse number 5 on the top of page 123. Right? I have now heard the morning I have remembered my covenant for Eskoret Preeti. Now he tells them on page 123 top of the page for Eskoret Preeti. Okay, we'll stop here. Next week we'll continue with the